listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. I was in the doctor's lounge at the hospital last week and one of my colleagues came up to me and presented this patient that he was confused about. He said, Ron, this lady came in the other day in the office and he said, uh, she told me she got up in the middle of the night and went to the bathroom and she passed a dime. I looked at him a little confused and she said, well, that wait. She came up in the next night and said she passed a nickel. Boy, that is sounding confusing. He said, it's not over yet. She came in and said the next night she got up and she went in and she passed a quarter. And then the light bulb went off. I said, oh, I know the problem. She's just going through the change. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're going to talk about this segment is going through the change. The change, the mother of all changes. That's how it's identified for many people. Now, again, I want to go to definitions because it's absolutely critical that we understand what we're talking about. Menopause means one thing, and that's stopping the periods. Now, that is something that happens at a point in time that often you can only look back on in retrospect. You can't predict, oh, this is going to be my last period. No, that's not how it works. Six months, a year down the road, you can look back and say that that's the case. I want you to think of menopause, though, not as that single isolated point, but as a continuum, as something that happens over a period of several years because that's physiologically actually what happens. Your ovaries just don't automatically cut off producing hormones. They will reduce the amount of hormones that they produce over a period of time. It's not like it's a, an absolute event. It's, back in the, in the 70s, some of you are young enough to remember or old enough to remember the old show All in the Family. And there was a segment in there where Edith was going through the menopause. And it really brought menopause into the consciousness of the country. And she was running around and flashing and screaming at Archie. And finally, he sets her down in the chair and says, okay, Edith, you've got exactly 30 seconds to get over this menopause thing. <laughs> Well, that's not how it works. It's a real continuum. The average age for the stopping of periods in this country today is 51. Now, remember, that is an average. It can occur earlier or it can occur later. And why is it even important? Why are we talking about this? Because it's become such a huge part of our culture now. We're seeing a volume of women entering into the menopause, a huge population bubble, a real demographic shift. These are the baby boomers who are now entering into the menopause. We can look at a graph that really illustrates how important this is becoming. We can see that that the number of women in the menopause right now are maybe 60,000, 60 million, and that may be up to 80 million. You see now, early in the century, the really the life expectancy was not that high. Oh, 47, 48, a lot of women didn't even make it to the menopause. But you look at now, the average life expectancy is in the 80s. On an average, almost every woman in here, if you make it to the age of 60, will live a third of your life in the menopause. And you got to remember, these are women like yourselves 
who have virtually changed society every decade that they've aged. These are the women who in the 60s were wearing flowers in their hair and sandals on their feet. In the 70s, they were burning their bras. In the 80s, they were rising in the corporate ladder. In the 90s, in this new millennium, they are making menopause and women's health not only a health issue, but an economic issue, a political issue. I mean, you look at these numbers, you see this rise. Women over the age of 60 are some of the highest consumers of health care in this country. If we don't begin to think about prevention, if we don't begin to think about health as menopausal women, then you're going to see this country bankrupt because the amount of money that's going to go into treating those problems is going to be astronomical. So it's important for you personally, but it's important for us as a culture to really embrace not what we have now, which is a sick care system, but truly a health care system where we can think, talk about things like prevention and being proactive. You know, there's estimates that almost 4,000 women a day enter into the menopause in this country. Could you imagine if we could harness all that energy? You know, if we could get all those folks in one spot and they had hot flashes, you could light up Chicago. <laughs> you know, just think of that. When we talk about menopause, we really focus on the symptoms. You know, I've never been called in consultation up to the ICU to see a woman on a ventilator and having terrible problems and have the doctor pull me over and says, Ron, she's got menopause. That's not what happens. It's not a terminal disease, but the symptoms are what create the issues. So I want to talk about ways that we can address those symptoms that we saw that arose around the perimenopause in the menopausal time frame. And we're going to talk a lot about HRT or hormone replacement therapy. Now, unless you've been on Mars in the last few months to years, you have seen multiple media uh, accounts and different uh, things on the television and the newspaper about hormone replacement therapy. It's gotten more press than the presidential primaries. It really has become a force in the culture and it's been a confusing force. Now, I want to give you some statistics which will help you to understand something a little bit better about hormone replacement therapy, maybe help clear up some of the confusion that's out there. First of all, only 17% of women in this country who could be on hormones are. Now that's a surprising statistic, less than one out of five. If you were in the boardroom or at the office or at the beauty parlor, you would estimate that almost everybody was on hormones because that's what everybody talks about. But in the truth is only 17%. Now that tells me one thing, not everybody needs hormones. It's not the answer for every woman. I have questions all the time. Well, doc, I'm 50, do I need to be on hormones? Not necessarily. In fact, there's probably a good chance that you really don't need to be. 40 to 50% of women who start on hormones will stop them within two years voluntarily. Now, that's amazing. The main reason they do that is because of side effects. Again, it goes back down to that thing we talked about earlier where the treatment is worse than the problem. We need to be doing something differently. This has fueled a tremendous interest in alternative approaches to menopausal symptoms, and we're going to spend some time on that. And the final statistic is that 
20% of women, when they leave the doctor's office with a prescription for hormone replacement therapy, never get it filled. One out of five never get that prescription filled. Why is that? Largely fear. And what is fear, F-E-A-R? False expectations appearing real. Oftentimes the information either is not communicated to them properly or they have a preconceived idea about what are the risks and what are the benefits. Well, I want to talk briefly to you about this 800-pound gorilla that we've got to talk about whenever we talk about hormone replacement therapy. And that's this huge study that has really been the, the push for all the media publicity in the last few years. And this is going to continue. You're going to continue to see information in the newspaper over the next several years because this study is ongoing. It's called the Women's Health Initiative, or WHI. I like to f refer to it as wiping out the hormone industry. <laughs> That's a more appropriate uh, term for this particular study. The reason this study is important is that it's probably the largest of what we call a prospective randomized trial, which is a very valid study done in medicine. It started back about 1993-94. They collected about 16,000 women, and they divided them into three separate groups. One group they gave PrimPro, which is a synthetic combination of Primarin and a synthetic progesterone called Provera. Another group they gave the placebo pill or the sugar pill. And then another group they gave just Primarin. And whenever you do a large randomized study like this, ethically, when you begin the study, you have to set some parameters. You have to set some guidelines because if you begin to see some adverse effects from those medicines, you're obligated ethically to stop the study. If I was doing a study on aspirin, for example, and I found that within a year, 50% uh, of people who take aspirin start growing wings, <laughs> then my ethically I'm bound to stop the study before everybody walking around is growing wings. Well, that's what happened with this WHI study. In July of 2002, they started analyzing the statistics and they found that the women on the PrimPro and only the women on the PrimPro were starting to meet certain preordained criteria for complications, in particular things like breast cancer, heart disease, and strokes. So they were obligated morally to stop that part of the study. They couldn't continue it because of what their guidelines quoted them. Now, what does that mean to you? That means a headline in the paper like, hormones increase the risk of breast cancer 26%. Hormones increase the risk of stroke 40%. Now, if that's as far as you got, you got real scared. But let me tell you some of the absolute numbers to help give you some perspective on this data. With regards to breast cancer, the absolute numbers were there were eight additional breast cancers in 10,000 women. Eight out of 10,000. There were seven additional strokes out of 10,000 women. There were six additional heart attacks in 10,000 women. Ladies, your chances of walking out here and falling on the ice and hitting your head is much higher than your risk of getting breast cancer based on this particular study. 
Well, why is this important? Well, it's important for several reasons. It has given us some valuable information. It has clarified some things and will continue to clarify some things with hormone replacement therapy. My challenge to you is not just stop at the headlines, not be swayed by just the media presentation, but dig deeper. And again, there's so many resources now that are available. I just came out with a new edition of Holy Hormones specifically to include information from this study so people could make that distinction. And again, there's websites. The, the website whi.org itself can help you distinguish what is real and what is, quite honestly, media hype. Now, what is the bottom line of the WHI, the pros and the cons. Well, the bottom line is that, yes, there may be a slight increased risk of breast cancer. If you were to break it down to your individual level, there would be less than one-tenth of one percent risk of you getting breast cancer per year by taking PrimPro. Now, an important point here, please remember this, this study looked only at that one drug. That is not the same as saying all hormones have that increased risk. It's very specific. What else did it show? Yes, there was an increased risk of heart disease in the first year of use. Therefore, we shouldn't use hormones to help prevent heart disease like we used to think it did because we're seeing that it really does not. What were some of the benefits? We, we know that it helps reduce the incidence of colon cancer. We know it reduces the incidence of fractures. So we know that there are some benefits from hormone replacement. What is the bottom line? The bottom line, women, is the only rational reason for using hormones, whether they're prescription or natural, which are prescription also, by the way, but the bioidentical, is symptom control. If you're not having symptoms, then the risks, in most cases, outweigh the benefits. So you've got to look at your individual thing. You cannot cookbook this. You're each unique. You each have your own past history, your, your, your present medical history. There's no one that can cookbook this and say a blanket statement, you, you should be on hormones. It really comes down to you as an individual making that decision. Now let's talk a little bit about the types of hormones because that's a, a, a very important distinction. One of the things that, that we talked about with the types of hormones is the difference between the natural and the synthetic. Now again, the synthetic are things that are created in your system, things that are, are, are created, uh, or excuse me, the natural are things that are created in your system like God intended you to be. The synthetic are things that are manufactured in the, in the laboratory. And, and those are things that the body is not used to handling. They're not used to seeing that. Is there anything spiritually different between the two? I get that question a lot of times from, from women who have a, a Christian worldview. And they ask me, well, isn't it better spiritually if I use something that God created? Well, let me tell you, ladies, God either put it in the bark of a tree or in the root of a plant, but he also may have implanted it in the mind of a scientist who came up with this medication. So there's nothing real different about the, uh, about the hormone content as far as their spirituality. And I think that's important to remember. Let's look at some alternatives and different approaches 
to menopause and treating menopausal symptoms in particular because there's a tremendous interest and I believe we have a, a graphic that illustrates some of the alternative approaches that we have available out there and I want to discuss those in a little bit more a uh, little bit more specifics because there's such a tremendous interest now in these things. Black cohosh is probably the single most studied natural herbal product that's available now to treat menopausal symptoms. There was a fabulous study that was done several years ago that compared Premarin with black cohosh and we found that the black cohosh was equal to the Premarin in helping reduce hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and emotional changes. Will it work for everybody? Absolutely not. Will it work for some people? Absolutely. Phytoestrogens. Those are really kind of a misnomer because the phytoestrogens are really herbs. They're not estrogens, but they're herbal products that can be used that are similar enough to estrogens that they can have a similar effect in symptom relief. The two most common are the isoflavones, and those are soy products and uh, red clover products. And the other is the lignans, and those are things like flax and flaxseed oil. So they act like estrogens in their system. They're not actually hormones, but they're similar enough, and they can be concentrated in the system enough that they can be extremely effective at reducing some of the menopausal symptoms. Many of you are familiar with the natural progesterone cream. That's a product that's actually sold over the counter. It's not a prescription, but I'll caution you, you have to be very critical and a good consumer when you look at these natural progesterone creams. Look at the content, look at the label. If it doesn't specifically say progesterone, then you're probably not getting a good product. So be very critical in how you evaluate these products. Vitamin E, if I had to pick a favorite pet vitamin, it'd be vitamin E. Vitamin E is wonderful as an antioxidant and for cardiovascular benefits. It's great for hot flashes in some women. It's great for breast tenderness in some women. 400 to 800 international units a day can make a marked difference for some women. I've even used the oil, the vitamin E oil from capsules for vaginal dryness. So there's a lot of different uses. And let me say this, ladies, every Every herb I mention up here, every alternative approach, everything I mention in the book is scientifically backed. We now have a huge volume of studies in our literature that support these things. We hold these treatments to the same criteria that we hold pharmaceuticals. And that's an important consideration because there is a lot of junk out there. Evening primrose oil and chaseberry we kind of briefly talked about as also being this class of phytoestrogens and herbs that are very good for, in particular, hot flashes. St. John's wort is a very interesting herb that it's been very effective for some mild to moderate emotional changes associated with menopause, in particular, anxiety and depression. Now, if you have a friend who's standing on the ledge getting ready to jump, you don't want to offer them Black, you don't want to offer them St. John's wort. It's not going to be real effective. It's very helpful for mild to moderate changes. Now, all of these, it's very important that you also understand about the quality and the dosage of these. It's extremely important because there is no FDA regulation of these products. You've all had the experience of walking into the pharmacy and seeing row after row after row of these products and not having any clue as to where to go with that. So it's incumbent upon you as part of that 
four A's as part of that aptitude to educate yourself with all the information that's out there about what is a good quality, what is the appropriate dose, how long should I take it for, and what are my options in doing that. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, ma'am. When we were talking about um, the, about going from PMS to perimenopause, I can't say it now. Perimenopause. <laughs> perimenopause. Um, it mentioned memory loss and all the other symptoms. Do, do we get any of those things back later? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, the, the memory, memory loss and concentration problems are a very common problem associated with the menopause. And we're finding now that they're actually estrogen receptors in the brain. So we know that estrogen does affect mental functioning. Do they ever come back? Yes, in many instances they 